they say, try it for three months, and uh, if you're not completely satisfied, you can send it back for a full refund, or something like that. And whenever I heard that, I thought, who in their right mind tries out a bed for three months, um, and then right at the end of that says, actually, it's not the one for me, I'm going to send it back. But that, but that whole satisfaction guaranteed thing is a really big deal because when a company makes a guarantee that guarantees your satisfaction, you know that they are absolutely convinced that you will be happy with whatever they've made. And the Easter story, the Easter account, makes a satisfaction guarantee. It makes a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Now, You might be thinking, well, we know what you're going to say, Dan. Jesus promises to satisfy us. Try Jesus, and you'll never go back. Well, that's not wrong, but that's not what I mean this morning. I'm actually talking about Jesus' satisfaction, that Easter promises, promised Jesus 100% satisfaction, 100% absolutely guaranteed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, it's alive, it's powerful, it's uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that uh, our souls would uh, let your word do the surgery that we need, and our minds and our hearts. Lord God, I pray that we would be captured once again with this amazing story that sometimes we can hear it so many times Uh, that it gets old, Lord. So I pray that through your inspiration and through your power and your presence that uh, you would speak powerfully into our lives through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 11 of Isaiah 53, this is the end of our Isaiah 53 series. And verse 11 says this, um, it says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. So this morning, we're talking about a satisfied Jesus, a Jesus who is satisfied. We uh, started this mini-series on Isaiah 53 a few weeks ago, and Isaiah 53 is all about the cross, and the cross is the hinge, which I mentioned in the first week, that connects faith and prayer. And, uh, and so in the first week, I said that, that it's the cross that gives foundation to our faith. Um, it, uh, it kind of keeps it from floating around and wisping off. And, and, and the cross is also what gives power to our prayers. Our prayers are no longer lying heavy on the ground, but instead, because of the cross, they, are, they, they have liftoff. Um, and so over these past few weeks, we've seen uh, numerous ways in which to look at Jesus through the lens of Isaiah 53, whether it's uh, the, the approachability of next door Jesus or the atoning power of fall guy Jesus or the silence of canceled Jesus. And then on Friday, just a couple of days ago, we felt the buildup of the tension of the narrative leading to crushed Jesus in verse number 10. Then after verse 10, we almost have this sigh of relief in verse 11 and 12 as we look beyond the crucifixion to the resurrection, right? Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Well, now Sunday's here, which is awesome. 
And so verse 11 and 12 show us a satisfied Jesus. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and he, Jesus, will be satisfied, right? It's that feeling which runners get after, after crossing the, the line of a grueling race. It's that satisfaction. It's being exhausted and being weary, but being satisfied. Or it's when you finally get off that long shift, um, that feeling satisfied. Um, it makes me think actually of Wendy right now. She's at, she's at college. She's doing school placement, and she's raising a family. She's involved in the church, as we saw this morning. And the number of times that I've heard Wendy kind of whisper to herself this mantra of just five more weeks, just four more weeks, just three more weeks. She's, she's just willing herself through. And, and Wendy's already planning what she will do afterwards. And when that moment comes, when she's done, what will the moment be like when she wakes up the next morning knowing that school is done for the year? I think that she will wake up and she will see the light of the morning and she will be satisfied. It's all done. It's over. It's now in the past. Now, if you times that feeling by a trillion and that gets us maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of how Jesus felt when he woke up in the tomb, knowing that it was all done, knowing that it was all absolutely finished, right? Because the pain was worth it. It meant that all of the suffering and the pain that he went through was worth it. You see, you see satisfaction cannot exist without suffering. Um, satisfaction always follows on from suffering, or at least some form of hardship or hard work. Satisfaction has to follow suffering. Satisfaction only works if there's something for you to compare the satisfaction to, which is the suffering. And so where did Jesus' satisfaction come from? Well, to answer that, we need to reverse back to year zero. Humans have sinned and they've ruined God's absolutely perfect creation, and the intimate, loving, trusting relationship between creator and the created is now uh, ruined. Sin has, has now moved into the world, and so the Trinity meet, and they try to come up with a rescue plan. So I wonder what it was like at that moment when Jesus comes up with the plan of salvation with the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Father says to Jesus, you know what this means, right? You know what this means? Are you sure that you want to go through with this? And ever since that moment throughout the eons and the eras and the centuries, Jesus has been counting down to that moment when he has to suffer. And then Jesus becomes human, right? T minus 33 years. And this rescue plan that is in theory is now becoming more and more real. And then he enters into public ministry, T minus three years, and the tension builds. And then there's that moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus stops what he's doing. He turns around and he resolutely walks towards Jerusalem. This is the start of the march that ends with him sweating blood in, in Gethsemane, appearing in front of the Sanhedrin court, um, facing off against a, a against Pontius Pilate, being whipped by the Roman squadron, being abandoned by his friends, being mocked, being spat on, and so on and so on and so on. T minus one hour. But still he knows that the worst is yet to come. Hanging on the cross, 
nails, thorn, spear, pain. Such pain that no human has experienced. And, and, and that sick feeling of being suspended over the edge of the roller coaster right before the drop. And then he's dropped into the morass of our sin and our putridness and our selfishness and our ego and our hatred and our spitefulness and our darkness and our unholiness. He falls into that. And he, in that moment, the second person of the Trinity would take all of our sin and all of our guilt on himself and he would be treated by the Father as if he was the worst of us. Jesus, the murderer. And Jesus, the adulterer. And Jesus, the human trafficker. And Jesus, the racist. And Jesus, the lazy. And Jesus, the lustful. And Jesus, the dark web surfer. And Jesus, the gossip. And Jesus, the serial killer. And Jesus, the war criminal. And Jesus, the gaslighter. Jesus, the mean and the vindictive. And Jesus, the ethnic cleanser. Jesus, the breaker of all of the Ten Commandments. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So the separation and the sorrow and the hell that he endured in our place as repeated tidal waves of holiness and justice pounded against him in his body and his spirit and his mind and he endured and he broke apart and he endured and he splintered and he endured and he wept and he took it and he took it and he took it and he withstood it. And minutes stretched into hours, stretched into days, stretched into weeks, stretched into months, into years, into decades, into centuries, into millennia, into eternity. And then silence. Silence. Silence for two days in the grave. Then his heart beats. His blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats and everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins and his heart beats. His heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns of breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar and his heart beats. He rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises and his work's already done, so he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won and his heart beats. These words from Andrew Peterson sum up that moment, that moment of satisfaction when Jesus' lungs filled for the first time and his heart began to beat again and his synapses fired once more. Isaiah 53, 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. His suffering led to satisfaction. Reading on in verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Well, what does this mean? How can knowledge really justify? How can Jesus's knowledge make people like you and me righteous? 
Well, we might reword it like this. The righteous one's human experience allows sinful humans to experience righteousness. The, the righteous one's human experience, i.e. his knowledge, allows sinful humans to experience righteousness. It's, it's like Jesus says, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. I'll show you my righteousness if you show me your human experience. Jesus experienced you know, the fullness and the totality of what we experience every day, all of the light and the shadow of the human experience with one exception. He did not sin. And it's through his knowledge, through his becoming human like you and me, that he could hang in our place and take what was rightfully ours. By his knowledge, my righteous one will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And once that's done, when he wakes up on Resurrection Sunday, he will see the light of life, and he will be satisfied. He will be sated. He will be full up. There is nothing missing. There is nothing lacking. He has to loosen the belt because he's full. He has done what he came to do Job well done, 100%, A plus. He is satisfied. And friends, the wonderful news of the Easter story is that Jesus' satisfaction can lead to our satisfaction. When we follow Christ, we aren't just saved, but we opt into Jesus' satisfaction. Like him, we can know what it is to be full and complete and whole and no longer hungry. Psalm 63 verse 4 says this, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, and with singing lips my mouth will praise you. And then Isaiah 53 tells us what happens next. Verse number 12 at, at the end. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. And why will this happen? Why will Jesus receive a, a portion among the great? Well, it's be, why, why, why will this happen? Well, this will happen because of something that has already happened. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgress, transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so Christ's pouring out his self-emptying led to him filling up with a portion. His pouring out in verse 12 led to his portion in verse 12. And this really sums up what Isaiah 53 is, right? We've seen the next door Jesus. We've seen the fall guy Jesus. We've seen canceled Jesus. We've seen crushed Jesus. And now we're left with satisfied Jesus with his portion among the great, among those luminaries. He's up there. In fact, he's Way above, right? He's, he's, uh, his name is higher. And so as, and so as we wrap up this morning, I want to leave us with one glimpse or a glimpse into one reason why Jesus was satisfied. Just one reason. There's tons of reasons why Jesus was satisfied. He was satisfied when he woke up in that tomb. He was satisfied on so many levels with so many things, right? That he was alive, that he'd fulfilled God's plan and purpose, that he'd conquered the grave, that Satan was now vanquished, that he'd proved himself right, that he'd fulfilled his role as our substitute, as our example, as our victor, and our ransom. All of these were reasons why Jesus woke up and said, yeah, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. 
He woke up with a smile on his face. But I want to end this message by focusing on one. One reason for Jesus waking up satisfied. And I think that this reason for Jesus waking up satisfied is really exciting because it shows you your future if you are in Christ. And here it is. Jesus woke up in the tomb with a smile on his face, satisfied because he was the first one to try out the resurrection body that all of us, if we're in Christ, will one day experience. He was the first to experience the resurrection body that all who were in Christ will one day know. He was the first one, you know, to test drive human body 2.0. It's like the person who tries out, you know, technology for the first time. Like those old YouTube videos of the big iPod and iPhone launches with Mr. Steve Jobs. And there's thousands of nerdy, mainly men in their suits and ties. And they're all excited. And and Steve is walking people through uh, what this new iPod or iPhone will actually do. And all of the Apple nerds who are in the audience are practically drooling over their ties and and their pocket protectors. But according to the Bible, Jesus's resurrection Resurrection body is our first glimpse into what our future selves might look like and what we might be able to do. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 51, says this, and I'm reading this in the New Living Translation, so it's easy for us to understand. So 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says this, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies bodies that never die, our mortal bodies must be transformed into into immortal bodies. So it's clear from 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be transformed. Now let's reverse up a few verses to verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15 that says this, the scriptures tell us the first Adam became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, so uh, we will someday be like the heavenly man. And who is this heavenly man? Well, it's Jesus in his Easter Sunday body. And, and who are the heavenly people who will be like the heavenly man? Well, it's the people who were born from above. And just like we are now like the earthly man in our frailty and our weakness and our sickness and this and that and the other, one day we will be like, like the heavenly man, like, like, like Christ. Which means that we can get a glimpse into our future heavenly post-resurrection bodies by looking at Jesus's heavenly post-resurrection body, right? That makes sense. So what does Jesus's post-resurrection body look like? Well, first, it was a physical body. Luke chapter 24 verse 39 says this. This is, this is Jesus after he rose again. He said, look at my hands and feet. It's my, it is I myself. 
Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So, so Jesus' post-resurrection body was a physical body. Secondly, it was a body that could eat. Uh, Luke chapter 24 verse 41 says this, And while they still did not, not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? What a normal thing for Jesus to say, right? Do you have anything here to eat? Then they gave him a piece, gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And so we can draw a conclusion that our resurrection bodies, like Jesus's, will be physical and that we can eat, which is kind of cool, right? We will eat in heaven. That's rather exciting. Thirdly, in his resurrection body, Jesus could relocate himself from one place to another through doors that were locked. Right? John chapter 20 verse 19 says this, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, he said, peace be with you. And that I'm reading this into the text, but it makes me think that Jesus must have had a sense of humor. I mean, was there anything from stopping him knocking on the door like a normal human being, waiting for it to be opened and then walking in and then saying, and then saying that? But no, Jesus, I think, wanted to show off his new resurrection skills. And so he appeared in the, most, in the midst of them and he said, peace be with you. Heart attack. Fourthly, as well as moving through walls, Jesus could vanish at will. Luke chapter 24 verse 30 says this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Uh, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. You know, just like that. It, it, it's like those YouTube videos, you know, uh, where that person has a sheet and they're in their doorway and the dog's over there and they have that sheet, uh, you know, and then, and then they let, you know, the dog look at them and then they raise the sheet and then they let the sheet drop and then they kind of move out of sight, right? You know, and then there's this little dog going, what the heck just happened? My wonderful owner just somehow vanished because they've got mad, mad magician skills. But Jesus in his post-resurrection body was able to do that for real, uh, you know, that not even with a puff. And so, and then there are some people who say that Jesus didn't need to rest after his resurrection. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I can't find any scripture really that um, maybe supports that. But here's, here's the thing, right? Here's, here's the logic. If Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be resurrected, and if Jesus' post-resurrection body is any indication of what our post-resurrection bodies are going to look like, then it might be reasonable for us to conclude that we will be physical, that we will eat, that we will be able to translocate through physical objects, and that we will be able to vanish and appear at will, which I'm excited about because I want to explore this world. You know, I, there's, there are loads of places I would love to go, and I would love to be able to just go, you know, and appear on the, on the Great Wall of China and the New Heavens and the New Earth, you know, whatever. But all of this, of course, is merely, merely conjecture, but it seems to have a root in Scripture. But what this says to us for sure is that Jesus, if Jesus' post-resurrection body says anything to us, it says that when this life is over, our destiny is not that of a floating spirit wafting over a landscape or an angel sat with a harp 
um, in some kind of cloud. Instead, our new reality is a physical reality like this one, but even more amazing, perhaps with super, superhero powers like the Avengers, but real. I mean, why not? And so let's return and let's re revisit that moment when Jesus wakes up in the tomb after he has suffered. He sat on the slab. He's folding up his grave clothes. Uh, he looks at his new hands with those marks in it because he will be the only one who's marked, you know, and, and he will have those nail prints in his hands or his wrist. And, and he will feel his renewed arms and he will test out his new legs and he will yawn and stretch his renewed ribs and his renewed stomach starts to growl because he's hungry. He, is, he has been next door Jesus. He's been fall guy Jesus. He's been canceled Jesus. He's been crushed Jesus. And as he wakes up and sees the stone being rolled away by the angel, he feels the light of life on his face and he smiles. He is satisfied Jesus because he sees in himself the start of a new creation, a restoration, a renewed universe in which this groaning world will be made right, where sin is no longer anymore, and one into which we will be resurrected into our new bodies. And just like Jesus, we will die and we will rise again. And in him, we see our future and the restoration of the entire universe. Satisfaction guaranteed 100%.